Yo, cut the song off. Hold on. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Beauty and the Beast mode. Again, I am Yeye Martinez. This is Big Jeff. And today, we have a special guest with us. Goes by the name of Dan Nevins. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Oh, he's excited. Oh, yeah. Everybody's excited. Jeff, make sure you stay. <laughs> make sure you stay on those controls, brother. This could get wild in here. We're excited to have him. Uh, a great story, a phenomenal story, and an inspiring story. Um, we've wanted to get him on for a while, and we finally um, have made this moment happen. For the listeners, Jeff. For the listeners. That's right. That's right. Yo, Wilson Phillips. And Jeff had Wilson Phillips queued up early on. I was making fun of him. I was like, dude, are you really going to play Wilson Phillips? He was like, why, bro? And then next thing you know, turns out that's my favorite song of all time. His favorite song, song of all time. time. And of, I grew up listening to gangster rap. Of all the songs in the world. Of all the songs in the world, Wilson Phillips, hold on, number one song. Number one song. And you were just you he was just telling us that you they had two concerts this year. They had two concerts, one in LA and one in St. Augustine, Florida. And I came and I went and was backstage, got to meet China Phillips and the Wilson girls, the whole thing. It was that's legit. Did they let you sing with them at all? I was like, literally, I was like, because my, my good friend is, you know, my yoga teacher is good friends with China Phillips. Mm-hmm. And like, he got me backstage and like all that stuff. And I was like, in my head, I was like, what am I going to do? <laughs> am I going to break out in song? You know what would be badass if, if they were like, we got a special fan in the audience tonight and they brought me up to sing Hold On. Yeah, yeah. Like, ah, hold on. But I can't sing. <laughs> So I was like, at least just going to fake it. Like, I had it all planned out in my head, but it didn't. I saw that happen at a concert this weekend. I was at a concert. The artist was a reggae artist, pulled some dude on stage from the crowd that was, like, going wild. The dude started singing a song, and then on the lyrics, he wasn't so sure about it. He just handed the mic back to the artist. But other than that, he was running up and down the stage, and the place was going crazy, oh, man. That would have been awesome if you were able to pull it that off, awesome, man. but it didn't happen. So, shout yeah. Well, you still got to meet Wilson Phillips, though. So. Yep. It was a great show, too. Cool. That's awesome, man. Jeff, how are you doing, brother? Doing good, brother. Here with Mr. Nevins. Like you said, we've been trying to get him on for a while. He is uh, all over the place. Happy to finally nail you down and have him on. Oh, that sounded a little rough. Man. It's okay. So when we do the podcast and we have our interviews, uh, normally we like to start uh, from the beginning. So if you would, uh, where were you born? Where did you grow up? I grew up a poor black child in Mobile, Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it's going to go, folks. Just going to let you know right now, that's how it's going to go. No, I, uh, I grew up in Baltimore. Okay. Uh, if you've seen The Wire. Yep. Who, who played you? Was that that was the doc season? I was a little, I was a little dirty kid in the corner. Uh, Bubs, it yeah. was Bubs. <laughs> uh, 
no, so I grew up in Baltimore at a place called Lansdowne, exit 9 off 695. It's in Baltimore County, but it's right next to the city line. Like, literally, it's just throw a rock over it. And, uh, yeah, like, we, we grew up poor. My dad was a truck driver, and uh, my mom worked in, like, an accounting. But my mom uh, left, kind of disappeared from the family when I was about 13. So my brother and I basically raised ourselves. My dad, you know, did the best he could, but he was gone. Most of the time, driving the truck, you know, doing that. So um, I'm actually really lucky I uh, graduated high school. Sure. For a while, did my 11th grade year twice um, because I missed 91 days of school my first junior year because no one was making me do homework or go to school. Sure. Like, I was working. I was making like, I think, 12 bucks an hour, which was a ton of money. Back then, sure. Back then. Yep. Like, I was just like rolling. So if I go to school and I can make all this money, like, oh. <laughs> you know, like I kind of um, decided I didn't want to be the kid just to school, so like I went back and tried. But I would, but I, I never did homework. I didn't do the things that I needed to do to get good grades or like um, do well. Was there something that changed your mind and your way of thinking? Yeah, well, like I was um, very fortunate too to have a, a Christian youth group growing up called Young Life, and um, one of my counselors there. And I don't know if it reverse psychology or what, but um, but she said, she's like, yeah, I have school with them for everybody. Like, you know, you think about Quill. Like, my husband, Tim, has a contracting business. You can work with him, like, painting and do this stuff. Wow. And I was just like, it was, like, meant to be, like, an olive branch. Like, hey, don't worry about it. But then again, I was like, I'm not going to quit school and go work for your husband. Like, mm-hmm. like no. <laughs> uh, so it kind of, like, made me stay. But the big thing, the big thing for me that got me to graduate on time Graduated and three days later, I was in basic training. Oh, but by then, the war was had already started and was over. 
Right. It was, oh, right. Yeah. So it was, it was like, super quick. Yeah, it was like boom, boom. It was like 11 days long or whatever. Right. But, um, and for those, for those who are listening who, let's say, are younger or, or don't know, what around what year was this? This is 1991. Okay. Yeah, so I, I, I joined at the beginning of – or the beginning of the school year was still May. But then uh, I think the, the war started at the end of February, near February, middle of February. Right. And the desert storm started right. and it was over in March. So right. And then I graduated in June. And then, Jeez. Yeah, wow. three days later, I was in basic training. Wow. And then I stayed in for eight years. Mostly, you know, peacetiming. So what was your role while you were enlisted? When I was enlisted, I was a mechanic. I was a 63 Bravo light wheel vehicle vehicle mechanic. And um, I remember when I took the ASVAB, I did a good job. And I, I, I qualified for basically any job I wanted to do in the military. But I wanted the GI Bill and the college fund and all these other little incentives. And they came back. And they were like, oh, well, you can pick from this, like, three or four things to do in the, in the, in the military. And there were, like, some things I never even heard of before. But then the mechanic one was like, oh, well, if I love to work with my hands, I could learn something from this. So I took that. And I did it, and I loved it. Like I, my first four years, I was in Germany. I got to travel all over Europe while I lived there. It's just cool to get from Baltimore. Like not have, I had a car. I learned how to use a public transportation system. I learned all that. And um, bam, I mean, my whole world of this, like the military, basically gave me like a whole new lease on life. Like it opened me up to things I would have never got to experience or do if I had stayed in Baltimore. And my whole universe was six blocks, you know, six blocks wide by nine blocks long. What's your What's your family's take on you joining the military? My dad didn't like. He didn't support it all. My dad was in during Vietnam, and he didn't go serve. My mom was already kind of gone, so she didn't really have a choice. But so my dad was um, reluctantly because I was seventeen, mm-hmm. so he had to kind of turn the papers with me, and he fought it um, every bit of the way. But then eventually he said, "It's your life." My dad had a thing with um, like authority. He didn't, mm-hmm. he didn't do very well uh, in the military. He did everything he was told. He wasn't like a bad, you know, bad seed or anything. But he just didn't like having to listen to people tell him what to do. So that's how, what got very well. <laughs> so, how did that work out for you when you were in the military? How was you? How would you say you were as a leader? Right. Because where I grew up, like that, like I was just kind of like doomed to a lifetime of mm-hmm. mediocrity at best. And oh, if you made twenty dollars an hour and you you owned your own small home in this little, like you were, yeah, doing great. And um, it's probably hard to be vulnerable in that kind of atmosphere as well, yeah, or in that kind of environment, yeah. right? Yeah, they, you don't even know what that that is. It's like vulnerability is really um, in in those like growing up in those environments, really a luxury, mm-hmm. right? Like. Yep. Right? And because uh, everyone's always, everyone's hustling, everyone's scrambling, everyone's looking for the, a deal or a win somehow. And they mm-hmm. don't care if they got a deal for you to do it, right? But um, yeah, so vulnerability isn't, wasn't uh, on the daily yeah. menu. But um, in the military, I got to experience some of those things. 
grew into a leader, and um, and I loved it. You know, be like becoming a non commissioned officer, right? And they, I was a made a corporal before I remained sergeant, but still, it's like they pin on that. It's like a badge of honor. It is like you're a leader of soldiers, and that it was just baffling. Um, like that's was a um, it was a, a moment for me of you know it changed my life really because it was wow like I'm I'm worthy yeah right like I can do this and and um and that, there was like sergeants that I looked up to like my whole life that like oh my god they can do no wrong and then uh, all of a sudden I was in the same club yeah and uh, and I took that responsibility to heart and I used to feel a really good job where. Were you during September 11th? September 11th, uh, 2001, I was out of the Army. I got out in 1999 after eight years. And I stayed in the National Guard. Mm-hmm. So I, I went from, you know, everyday Army to one week in a month. I had I went to 21st Special Forces Group in Maryland for, for six months. I, was, uh, I went back home to Maryland after I got out. Yeah. And then uh, I was in that special forces unit and trained to go to special forces assessment and selection and do all that hard physical stuff. But then I started like looking around and there were all my friends like in their parents' basements and my family was still there in their same six block by nine block universe and I was like, I need to I get out of here. So I moved to California and went to a combat engineer unit and went to school full time at Sonoma State University. So I was gonna go, you know, get a degree, have job, kind of like live that American dream, and I was in my senior year almost, or going into my senior year, and um, or end of my junior year, because yeah, 2001, and I got a call from my girlfriend, who later became my wife, and said, she's like, you gotta, you gotta turn on the news, she started her day at like 5.30 in the morning, 6 a.m. now. She's like, something's on the news, something happened. I don't know. I'm on the, getting radio news, turning to the news. So I'm on the phone with her, watching the news, and I turn it on just in time to see the second plane hit the tower. <clears throat> and then um, kind of going through that whole thing, I was like, holy shit, this is like there's an attack in the mm-hmm. building. It was conjecture. The first time I've ever heard the name Osama bin Laden. Like, right. All these things were brand new. And uh, I just remember saying to myself, And then in the same breath, I was like, <laughs> no, we're not. Because I had just left active duty a couple years before at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. What rank were you at that time? I was staff sergeant. Okay. So it was home the airborne. Mm-hmm. PT together, <clears throat> right? And uh, now I'm in the California Army National Guard. And like, Living it up. Folks uniform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm in the training room. I'm like, people have shot their weapon in six years. Yeah. Right. It's not going to happen. And uh, it was like that for a while. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it clicked. So how long did it take before you guys got deployed? We got deployed once, but it was like um, right after 9-11. And we were mobilized to go on the border of California. I was in California Army National Guard, the border of California and Mexico, the San Ysidro point of entry. Mm-hmm. And it was basically just a show. They're like, we're going to start on this wall. <laughs> Let's not let's not go there. But it was the whole, hey, we're down here to do something, but we couldn't carry weapons because it was against the Posse Comitatus Act. 
Right. Uh-huh. Somebody had somebody else got nunchucks. <laughs> somebody's beat somebody's beating a drum. Just What was your immediate thought? My immediate thought was like, fuck, really? Mm-hmm. And it was, had nothing to do... And where were you at that? Like, what was happening for you yeah, at that time? That's the whole thing. It's like, yeah. I'm in California. I just got a great job selling pharmaceuticals. I'm making a boatload of money. My wife, when she got married, my wife's making a boatload of money. We had just bought this house on a cul-de-sac in Windsor, California. And like, my backyard... But ever was there a point throughout that time, from the time of your first deployment stateside mm-hmm. until 2004, you said, right, that you were like, okay, this can happen, this can happen, this can happen? It was, um, I saw they were mobilizing some of the National Guard, and I was just like, I, mean, I never really thought it was going to happen. I mean, yeah, it could. Yeah, it could happen, but like, no, odds are bad. Because like, I know these, like, these people. Yeah. people that you know you think are like off fighting wars right so it, when we did finally get deployed it took our whole battalion so roughly 600 plus people to make one deployable company company it was like 100 and a couple people so right basically one in six were fit to fight and so we're all coming together from different companies like we don't even know each other it's like the complete ant- antithesis of what you'd want to happen like everyone's trained together they fought together now they're going to get deployed together so yeah they're gonna come home together this is like i know two guys out of a hundred and like we're all getting to know each other and by the way we're all going to harm's way so even like it was funny like we got deployed when we got the order it was like hey we're going to be deployed for six months we're either going to bosnia or we're going to go to sinai egypt Mm -hmm. or we're going to go to iraq for six months and i was like we're not going to iraq so like we're going to bosnia we're going to sinai we're going to relieve somebody so they can go fight the war yeah Right. A lot more than six months. Yeah. Right? That's 18 months. So um, it was hard. It wasn't like the deployment didn't start that great because six months was one thing. And telling my, my new wife I'm about to be deployed six months. Right. She's, I thought that was over. I thought you weren't going to go. And then it's like, oh, sorry, day of, we're leaving. So it's not six months, it's 18. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I remember like showing her that and she just 
Yeah. Yeah. So boots hit the ground overseas. <clears throat> Thoughts. Thoughts. So more like let's back it up. Like we're getting deployed. Yeah. And like we're all we're all full of questions. What are we gonna do? Like what's our job gonna be? And right? So like I was a mechanic. He was like an infantry guy. They're like, like, yeah, they're like not anymore. Like now we're all they all waved our magic wand and said, Boom, you're provisional infantry. Yeah. So we went reorganized from a combat engineer unit to an infantry We got deployed, we were part of 81st Brigade Combat Team, which is from Washington State. Like the way the National Guard works, you belong to a particular state. And then when you're federally activated, you're kind of part of the, the Army system. So we went with a, we were a California unit that just kind of got pulled together. Uh, Alpha Company, 579th Combat Engineer Battalion, attached to 81st Brigade Combat Team. And then we were all getting deployed to go somewhere in Iraq. We didn't know. So we're all like, Sitting up talking, like, what do you think we're gonna do? And I'm like, well, we're gonna be back somewhere, like doing something not high profile. And I'm like, I'm like, look at us, dude. Like, look, we're not. We got this guy is a tanker who hasn't even, you know, been in a tank in six years. Just been in the National Guard. This guy is a medic who is really not, you know, much overweight. Mm -hmm. Like not eating right, not making good choices. Right. This guy is a bulldozer operator and, you know, who's been in the Army for a year, mm -hmm. National Guard for a year, right? So it's just like, I'm like, I don't want to fight these people. Yeah. And uh, we go through, like, some initial train-up. We get into Kuwait. We're still wondering. We go, we're going to convoy into, um, through Baghdad to a place called Bawat. Turns out we're going to be, 81st Brigade Combat Team was taking over the operation of LSA in the Congo. So, oh, okay, so I'm, like, doing this kind of homework. Okay, so we're going to be working in the gates and in the towers, and then other, now we'll be, like, responsible for infrastructure. And like, okay, no big deal. It's not like being on a field problem. Right. Then right before we roll in, Alpha Company, you guys are being attached to this thing called Task Force Tacoma, and you're going to be attached to 1st Infantry Division, and you guys are going to be the ones taking over the village and saving money that way. And I was just like, what? Yeah. Like, I didn't expect it. Yeah. Um, I was really happy. There's a part of me that was, like, happy. And I, it's weird to say, but, you know, I joined. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And then that got taken away, but, like, I'm glad. Like, glad that yeah. no more death, no more, you know, none of that. But, but, you know, it was kind of, like, the reason I joined. And then eight years of peacetime army, got out, did one deployment with the guard. It was, like, no big deal. And now here it is, like, I'm getting to do the thing. I joined the force. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, learned really tough lessons um, about everything, about how real this is. Like it's not, like it's not a video game. Mm -hmm. It's not a joke. I mean, this is um, real stuff. So like we we dedicate ourselves every day. So you mentioned that here it is nine ten years later almost that mm -hmm. since you signed up originally. Now you're over there in Iraq. And a lot of the peeps that you were with, here it is, they weren't ready for this mentally, physically, and, and they've been out of it for so long. 
what was the mindset and what was going through your and, and the company's mind when all of a sudden, like you mentioned, you start losing people, you're learning these lessons really quick. What were all of you thinking? There was a lot of anger. Man, I remember we didn't have the right equipment. So we're like driving into like Peru or war zone to get to where we're going. And we had like, it was like our, our Humvees were like the Beverly Hillbillies coming to town. Like we had plywood roof. Like we were like filling up sandbags for like makeshift armor. Like we had people that could weld, like I could weld, there was two others. We're fighting scrap metal and like bolting and welding armor onto like these Humvees. I mean, it looked like literally somebody made it in their backyard because that's that's like what we did. Um, but we were like not trying to take any risk that we didn't have to. And I remember we didn't have the best weapons and we didn't have, you know, all the things that we felt, you know, could, you know, skew things in our favor. And so we were like a little bit like feeling like left out. property here like let's get some better equipment and eventually it started happening it did and even though we lost people like when we started rededicating like we actually got some really good guys back and um i used to look at this group of like people that may have turned into ambassadors for these people and then as Didn't wind up on a postcard anywhere. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. Um, combat cameras out on one of our missions, and they took a photo. And that photo wound up to be used on every, uh, what the heck is that magazine? Soldier of Fortune mm -hmm. magazine subscription renewal thing. It was like, that was our picture. Yeah, it's like the little card. Yeah. Was like the, the card that you tried to tear out when you... That's the card that's in the magazine when you're using the bathroom. You want to tear it out because it keeps closing the magazine. <laughs> that's you guys. That's cool. <laughs> um, so within your 18th month deployment, um, what were you encountering? And there was something happened that really changed your life. Yeah. So day to day, like our missions ranged from humanitarian things to um, uh, winning the hearts and minds. Like we brought mm -hmm. kids basketball. I mean, we had people send stuff in the home. Candy, basketball, the whole thing. But the kids are innocent for the most part. And some of them need boost and, you know, right. It was, um, like, we had to fire weapons, but it wasn't an everyday thing. Like, most of the time was spent not firing our weapons, just being present, show of force, like, doing patrols, and basically <coughs> asking people if they needed help or have they heard anything. Basically, you would think the grunt work of gathering intelligence on the battlefield and just showing up and, be, and being nice guys. Like, we weren't trying to. 
it was not like rolling in like we're Billy Badass and like we're gonna shoot everybody up. It was it was the opposite of that. It's like no, like we're here to try to help make things better. And then if you know if you had to fight, you had to fight. Um, but the fighting was a lot less than the attempt standing around. <coughs> but I remember the Battle of Fallujah started on November seventh of two thousand and four, and I remember because they stole my medic, Sean Gutro. They took him and uh, got a new medic, guy named Dan Smoo. And you know we were kind of moving along, and we just thought it was going to happen in Fallujah, but we were in Balad, so it wasn't really going to impact us. And then on November ninth, we got intelligence from the insurgency of Williamsburg to our neck of the woods, and we were logistics kind of hubs of Jewel, so everyone would come in on planes, be divvied up, go out on convoys to all these different field operating bases, and um, so strategically, I was probably a significant target, so um, we got intelligence that they were coming to us, so that's the <coughs> most professional army in the world, we decided to meet them where they were instead, so we drew up a battle plan, um, we were doing a 72-hour dismounted counterinsurgent operation, and <coughs> you know, we practiced Two hours dismounted, just waiting for the bad guys. They show up, we take care of business, come home. And uh, I remember, like, you know, we went to bed after that tough time, had like a couple hours of sleep at a four o'clock in the morning start time. And uh, I was going to be in charge of this this dismounted team, me and the PS, because my platoon sergeant, a guy named Sergeant First Class Mike Eileen, was having a hernia repair that day. So it's November 10th, 2004. We're about ready to prepare for this, this, this mission. And I'm doing my pre-combat checks on all the teams. So there's a 50-vehicle convoy. I have two people in each truck. Get to do the pre-combat checks, get to the lead vehicle. And my driver's supposed to be there, a guy named Smooth. And then instead, it's Mike, starting first class, Mike, only my boss. And he's about to drive the truck. And he's a E7, and he's a platoon, platoon sergeant. And platoon sergeant, for people who don't know, who's li- who are listening, they don't drive trucks. They like ride in trucks. They're in the truck commander seat, tell people what to do. They don't drive. <coughs> so I was like, Mike, like, what are you doing here? He's like, well, I told Smoothie he was sick so I could drive. Hmm. Because he was going to have, he was like, I'll be damned and send everybody out. And I'm not even participating. Yeah, he had to go fly that day to, uh, to get his hernia repaired, but he wasn't going to like miss out. Right. And like, that's the thing about Mike is, you know, if Mike was in a room, if he was here with us, he wouldn't be the smartest guy in the room. He wouldn't be the most charismatic guy in the room or the most liked guy in the room. But I don't care what room it is. Mike Eileen is the hardest working human being in that room. I don't, I don't care what country and what planet. And um, like he wasn't going to miss out. Mm-hmm. So I gave him like a high five. We got in the truck. And then I remember we left the main gates of El Atenacone at exactly 4 o'clock in the morning. Military precision. We went through the zigzag of the Hesco barriers and we took a right on Ralph Dover, which is a paved road, and took an almost immediate left on this pitiful dirt road in Ralph Dover. It's supposed to be our dismount site. And I remember it was like pitch black outside. Low hanging cloud cover, so you couldn't see the moon or stars, and um, it was really eerily quiet. How many 
vehicles on this convoy? Six. Six hundred. Okay. Nine of them vehicle. Mike's driving. I'm sitting behind Mike. And how many people total? Five people per truck. Okay. and burning metal that used to be the floorboard and undercarriage of the truck. And, you know, like, my bells rung really good. Things were coming into focus. My ears were ringing. My face felt hot. I had this sickening knot in my stomach. Felt kind of like I was going to throw up, but I more tasted blood in my mouth. And, like, I knew I was hurt pretty bad, but I didn't really know how bad. And then when the dust started to descend, I looked forward, and that's when I saw I was supposed to be the guy telling them, right? But I wasn't saying anything. Was yours the only vehicle that was struck? Yeah, the lead vehicle. Thank goodness. <clears throat> and I'm listening for a follow-on ambush, which thank God didn't happen. And starting to check myself out. Like, they were trained. Like, I know they're okay. They got the perimeter. I, I, I know I'm hurt bad. So I grabbed my helmet, you know, part and piece of my hand. And I'm like, shit. <laughs> right? But mm -hmm. I'm still alive, and that's good. Checking myself my arms, my torso. When I reached up to my legs, that's that's when I felt it. So if I'm laying my back in this like silky powder like dirt, my legs are caught and they're but they're up in the truck. And when I reached up, I felt the unmistakable arterial blood start running through my heart, and I knew I was gonna die. Mm -hmm. say that when you're about to die, your life rushes forward. And that wasn't really my experience. Like, what I, what I got was like more like a, almost like a slideshow of the things that I hadn't done yet, or, or wanted to do. And one by one, I'm like saying goodbye to these uh, images. And then there was one that was Mm -hmm. No, like I'm alive, I'm alive. 
that reached my hand into the wound that like almost up to my wrist trying to find it. So I was going to be like MacGyver and like pinch off the arm. Right, right. And, like, I'm good. I got this. Mm. We walked this off. I got my mm. finger in a rubber band. <laughs> right, got, there you go. Duct tape and Bobby's hand. <laughs> I fixed my leg. The truck's going to blow up. I'm going to throw it into the enemy. <laughs> uh, it's not really how it happened, right? Mm. So I just pressed and prayed. And then I hopefully still the bleeding down enough to give time for meds to arrive. So you literally press your hand into your... Into Mm-hmm. It's like, it was basically I had, because what had happened is shrapnel from the blast was 255 millimeter artillery shells at 400 of my feet. Had cut through the inside of my thigh and the outside. So the fentanyl had just on the inside. The blood was coming out fast. Like, and the, the wounds on the out, outer edge of my thigh, I didn't, wasn't even aware of mm-hmm. at the time. <clears throat> but um, when I reached in, I basically had an inch and a half Mm-hmm. I'm holding it like and the rest was just my bone was intact but everything else was just completely right. filleted right open so I reached my hand in and pressed and prayed and then boom like I blinked my eyes and the medics were there and then I blinked again I got a tourniquet on my leg and I blinked again and Sergeant Tillage who my team leader was putting an IV in my arm how long do you think that entire process over so what period of time like time mm-hmm Mm-hmm. So it was my whole body more than once. And um, so if you're out there listening, you're a blood donor, keep it up. You're saving lives. Saving lives, blood donors. O negative, that's me. That's also what they need the most of. If you're O negative, donate today. So, um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So talking about, uh, um, were you going to go to Facebook Live? Yeah, yeah. yeah, so we're on Facebook Live as well. So there's some questions coming in right. and some that uh, pertain to some of the things you've been talking about right here. Uh, first question is from Gonzo Salvatore. Uh, how important do you think talking about your experiences in combat has been to your recovery? Has speaking helped you cope with the after effects of being injured? And how important is it for other vets to talk about their experiences in combat? been very cathartic, right? So I, I, I'm a professional speaker, and when I tell like stories, it's a little different here in this like informal setting, but when I share my story, I relive it every time. And that seems like, it would seem like that's a bad thing to do. It's actually the best thing in the world. Um, because when you're able to, from a different place, like safety and security, like go back and revisit that moment and smell the sounds you're able to like look at it from a different lens of like I actually I'm fine yeah I lost both legs I really my brain blew 
being visible means of war, right? But like in reality, like I'm fine. I live an amazing life. I have two beautiful daughters now and one on the way. I have a grandchild on the way. Like I did all this amazing thing, these amazing things happening in my life. And yeah, I did, I had an experience where like I almost died and I lost someone very close to me. And there were other experiences similar to that, like throughout combat. And being able to talk about those um, has made me really heal, right? Because it's, it's, and it's not talking about it like it's something that happened. I have to experience it because it's, it's one, it's inauthentic not to. And the, the, the moment I get to like telling my story is a chore or, uh, or like I'm just going through the motions, like then it's time to stop. Because it doesn't do anybody any service to um, just kind of like, yeah, it was just good driving everyone up. And, uh, yeah, like that doesn't really, so, I mean, it comes out like that sometimes when like someone asks you and you're having like trying to run up a door. And um, I always, I always hate it. Like I actually um, save sharing my story for situations like this or, or on stage because it's so important, one, for me to hear. And two, for other people to know, like what it's like to, to serve and like what that lifestyle is actually like versus what they think it's like. And for other warriors um, who, are, who might be listening, like you have to tell your story. And let me just tell you, your story is you're not eight foot tall and bulletproof. Like, man, I get sick of like being around, around wounded veterans a lot. And it's like, if one person in the room, like, is special forces and, like, you know, like, that's it, then they got, like, everyone feels like they need to talk about how they were Billy Badass. And, like, no, it's just not true. It's just not true. Like, not everybody, like, won the Silver Star. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just not. Like, I didn't, like, I didn't, I didn't, you know, do anything heroic. Like, people, like, I struggle because people are like, oh, you were deployed, you lost your legs, you're a hero. I'm like, actually, like, no, I'm not. Like, um, yeah, I was willing to go fight. If you want categor- to categorize it, I'm not going to tell someone they're, they're wrong. But, like, I don't feel any sort of, um, like, any sort of hero. Does that annoy you when people say that? It used to. It used to annoy me. But then I, I got to. They're just trying to do something that they feel like they have to say. Like people, it's the hardest. Like I've had people in line like buy my groceries, like a whole like not just like one or two, like a whole cart full of groceries. He's got like two refrigerators in his house. <laughs> That's <laughs> and and he shops at like Fresh Market, and Whole Foods. You know what I mean? story to answer the question telling your story is, is really important even if it's around a group of your peers so you got to get it out and be and be honest about what you're actually struggling with right like people like oh man struggling because oh people i shot when actually they're struggling because they never pulled the trigger on their weapon hmm. and they feel like inadequate or, or not worthy 
and I'm like, you're just as worthy as everyone else, man. Like, thank God you didn't have, you, you weren't put in a situation where you had to, you know, engage the enemy like that. Right. And um, don't feel bad about that. Why, why do you think that's so difficult? It's difficult because the ego, man, it's out of control. Like, it's mm -hmm. like everyone has this sense of like, oh, yeah, I was in the army. So then people who aren't in the army have this, like, expectation of you. They're like, oh, well, then you're a soldier. Like, you, you know, oh, oh. And then and it never fails. Like, the public, they mean well, like, oh, well, you're special ops. Mm -hmm. Like, everyone just goes to what they hear. And then, like, all of a sudden, if you're not, oh, then you're, like, lesser. So right. people, like, think, like, yeah, yeah, I did some things. You know, and then it just goes, kind of trails off from there. But I think it's it all goes down to, like, they're embarrassed. Their, like, ego is in the way. Who's talking about that? Who's telling people, who's telling veterans, who's telling warriors to to open up about their true experience and to push ego aside and to not and to to understand that one person's story and one person's chapter, that's their story and that's their chapter. Mm -hmm. Yours is different, but it's not any less. still be proud of mm -hmm. the fact that you were part of the machine that liberated people. Right. Right? Like, and, but people feel like it's, it's sort of this um, expectation that, like, oh, well, you've got to be tough as nails, mm -hmm. eight foot tall, like, full of amends, like, you know, like, operate every weapon system known to man, when, like, the reality is most people in the military one weapon system the whole time. The primary weapon system is usually M16A2. Or if not, if you're lucky, you get an M4. Mm -hmm. Right? And then maybe maybe you shot an M203 once on a time, a little grenade launcher. Maybe yeah. you got on a crew serve weapon, like a mm -hmm. like a, a, a Mabuse or a, or a you know, 50 caliber machine yeah. gun or a, or a P40 Bravo or something. But like the, the lion's share of the military, I mean, they shoot one weapon and they barely shoot it. And there's no shame in that. Yeah. At all. Another question from Facebook Live. Uh, just want to say if anybody has any questions for Dan, type them up. Shoot them up. out. Shoot them out. Capricorn, like long walks on the beach. Nice. <laughs> um, from Andrew, Dan, what was the moment post-injury that you knew you were going to be all right and be able to live your life? Super hot. Didn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> the moment I knew I was going to be okay. <laughs> Erica. <laughs> I saw my nurse and she was hot. And I knew, but it's kind of true because my mind was, well, yeah. she was like a seven. I can she was a seven. But she had pain medicine. So boom, she was a ten. <laughs> Man, overnight. No, but like, it was that until I got to Walter Reed, I didn't get a chance to talk to anybody. Like, 
now that Ron's going to a medical center for seven days, because Battle of Fallujah was going on, the hospital was full. Mm-hmm. I wasn't in Fallujah, but the Battle of Fallujah was in Austin. And I saw like the wards all full, hallways full of combat wounded, mostly Marines, most of them 18, 19 years old, most of them hurt a lot worse off than I was. And they were sending codes, and the codes like people dying, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Dream Weaver. <laughs> right, exactly. You got it. <laughs> you look like Ed Harris. Uh, Adam mentioned 
on here. He commented, whoa, this is amazing to listen to. Kudos for sharing, Dan. Uh, Real quick. Before you get to that question, we're going to get to some of these questions, but I also want the people on Facebook Live to know that we're not going to be live for the entire interview. We're going to get going soon. Because they got to go and listen to the podcast, right? We can't give it all. You know what I mean? Tune in. It's a taste. It's a great taste. It's a great taste. Um, but, yeah. So, just want to make sure if you got questions, get them in uh, promptly. Uh, D asked, Dan, do you go through a period where you were against talking and reliving your experience as part of your recovery? If so, what made you change your mind? Did you try other methods? I was never against it, but it, but it came up on me. Um, like speaking was, I didn't um, use speaking as a tool to heal. It just turned out that way. I started speaking when I was at Walter Reed in the hospital and there was in the Warrior Project doing all these great things for warriors, but then there was, there was three people. Well, really four. They had one paid employee, and so I got to I got to hear some of the talks, right? Like they weren't intended for my ears, but like the war is really small. You hear people. I didn't know whether next if they were going to be able to pay for the shit that they're doing for warriors. Like I knew that like raising money was um, an issue for the organization. It was brand new. Like they were just figuring things out. Like could they even survive as a nonprofit? Could they make it happen? And I went to a golf tournament. And at the golf tournament, like it was a really nice country club, and then I was I was just started playing golf, so I was curious of what it costed to be a member there, because like I didn't know anything about golf, like I had just started playing, and I was I was using golf to heal too, like that was really therapeutic for me physically and mentally, and went and I listened, like literally, it's like a hundred grand to join this golf club, and like the dues are like fifty grand a year, and like yeah, that's not much, mm -hmm. like right. what to play golf? Like are you kidding me? And then you've got to pay to play, even once you're a member? Like, are you, what? Are you nuts? Like, this is yeah. – like, so, I, so I knew everybody at this golf tournament had a lot of money. And then I knew how much they were charging them, and it wasn't that much money. So at the end, I asked this guy, John Melia, who's the founder of the New World Project. I said, hey, John, can I talk to these people? Mm -hmm. So I wound up just, like, sharing my story. And I was – man, there were tears everywhere, and it was just like they had snot. Like, it was ugly because I had never really told it before. Uh -huh. and, um, and at the end, because I'm a salesperson, I was a pharmaceutical sales. I have no problem asking people for money. Mm -hmm. And then I, like, cleaned up the snot, and I was like, if you are worth a shit, you will open up your checkbook. And by the way, I know how much it costs to be a member here, mm -hmm. and I know how much, like, discretionary income you probably have. I said, I'm not asking you to take food off the table, but I'm asking you to write a check that hurts. Mm -hmm. Just be aware. And they raised an extra 100 grand that day. Yeah. And I was just like, from then on, they were like, hey, Dan, you want to come to this uh, event? Hey, you want to tell your story? You want to ask him for money? Right? So it kind of started like that. Uh -huh. And um, and then what I found was I got to heal. So I was never really against it. Matter of fact, the opposite. I wanted to start a speaker's bureau, and we did, called Warrior Speak. And teaching other wounded warriors to share their story and caregivers to share their story from that place of authenticity so they can share it too. And that's exactly what happened. Now, what about for your, um, not necessarily for your speaking mm -hmm. spokesperson, right. but 
for the recovery aspect that you had? Um, Did you ever not want to address that? Yeah, like there were moments where I was like this, like especially after the first one, after I gave that first speech, like I was wrecked, man, for like three days. And then the next time I spoke, I was like, oh, I'm really dreading this. Like I didn't want to, but then I just did it because I the benefit. Like I that I saw the benefit. So it's kind of like I don't want to go through three days of crap again, but I do want to raise more money for the organization. Mm-hmm. So it's like it kept winning that way. And then what I found was is that recovery period got smaller and smaller the more that I would go. Um, but it wasn't the only thing I had. So I had golf, which is very 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 therapeutic and instrumental. It's kind of like I had enough. And thanks to them the Warrior Project, really, because they were taking me to the driving range. Like, I was, got all these things for free. Like, they were giving me these opportunities to, like, cope with the invisible wounds and the physical wounds a little better. Like, they gave me, like, different options. And the speaking was one that just kind of happened organically. So we have one more question here uh, before we hop off of Facebook Live. But uh, before I get to that question, did... Were you doing all of these things prior to your injury or so like the golfing and, and all this? No, no, I was, um, I had played golf before my injury, but it was very infrequent and it was not good. So it's like, I actually learned how to play golf post injury. I had been golfing before, but it's just more like a drinking contest, smash a ball off the tee and just figure out what to do next and not know to like ultimately becoming a single digit handicap. So it's like, yeah, I played golf before, but it wasn't even close to the same thing. And I had definitely not, you know, I'd been snowboarding before, but never, like, I didn't think I could do any of that stuff, at least when the Warrior Project came along. I should try it out. So at that moment when you're like, oh, yeah, snowboarding now, I've never done it before, and now I'm injured, what went through your mind as to how were you scared? What what was what were your feelings? And let's say there are people listening, let's say who are in the same situation now. What what kind of did it take for you? And how did you say I'm going to do it? Well, I was very lucky that I had those people at Wounded Warrior Project and the hospital staff saying you should take this opportunity. You know, like the generation before me didn't they didn't have Wounded Warrior Project in their hospitals saying hey you want to go skiing, hey you want to go. This generation, they, they, they have it. You've got to take advantage of it. And so when there are things like snowboarding, yeah, I had a lot of fear at first because I was a brand new amputee and like everything was weird and like I didn't want to hurt it and like I didn't even know how to leg. Like when I was first getting my first prosthetic leg, I was just like, I couldn't even get my head around how it was, I was going to rip on. Like it was the easiest, now it's second nature, it's like no big deal. But like I see other people like looking at it, like how does that even go on? And I want to say, wow, it's so simple. But then like even when it was my leg, I'm looking at this prosthetic leg and like how do I even get this on? And um, so the fear was there, but it's more like, man, I just gotta do it. Like you have to be in like in the present moment, right? Like it was either it's either go snowboarding or regret what I did. And I would rather. Versus, man, I didn't even try. And it's just like knowing that, like, 
first got hurt, like, I knew my life was over. Like, and the guy with no legs, what can the guy with no legs do? Like, in my mind, it was nothing. Like, I was a competitive runner. That was going to be gone. I had a smoking hot wife. She wasn't going to love me anymore. I had this daughter who looked up to me. She probably wasn't. Like, my I was giving up on all of it. And, um, yeah, like, that's no way to live. No way to live. So we've all known veterans who, who took the opposite approach who stay inside, don't go out, and don't, as you put it, live and thrive. What's your message to them? My message to them is, like, really, if they're listening, or if, or if people who are listening to know that person, is, like, life is your choice. It really is. So, like, you can choose. You can choose to, like, not face your demons. You can choose to, like, stay inside and, and, and avoid your triggers for PTSD because PTSD, when it's PTSD is a mother of something. Like it is, it's not good. It's a, but it's a very natural reaction. It's, it's your brain doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And and then it makes things hard when you come home and you're not the son of the house, right? And it makes everything hard, family hard, work hard, like everything's hard because combat in reality is very simple. Keep your guys left and right alive. You stay alive. You eat. You sleep. You do, you do your mission. You go home. Like it's simple. You don't have to worry about paying bills or like relationships. Like you have relationships in the military, but even the people like you don't like when when like you're on an operation, bullets start flying. Yeah, they're your best friend. They got you. They'll keep you alive and they'll keep them alive. Period. It's really easy. But like when you come home, like it's your choice how you want to live. But like my plea is my plea to them. And they're not serving anyone, not their family, not themselves, for sure, if they're just, like, staying at home wasting away. And it's, um, it's, like, I get real torn up about it because there's all this, like, raw talent. Like, we, we America has invested tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars into training these amazing human beings to be great soldiers, great leaders, and then <coughs> something happens whether it's a physical wound or an invisible wound, kind of takes them out, whether they retire or whether they just separate from service or whether they get wounded. And now they're like, okay, so they no longer, they're looking in the mirror, there's no longer that person wearing a uniform saying, well, that, no question what my purpose is. They look in the, they look in the mirror and there's no uniform and a lot of people are left with, like, I don't even know what my purpose is. So without that purpose, they, they just kind of pull inward. <coughs> To 100% of people, it's why I don't like the, um, so much the old stereotype of like the VFW and the and the, um, and the uh, American Legion, because everyone wears their hats. They have like the best version of themselves, like already happened. Like I was a general, I was a staff sergeant kicking in doors and like chasing down bad guys. Like it's the, like they're, they've peaked. It's like the person that peaked in high school. It's like Uncle Rico, man, I can throw this football over the mountains, <laughs> right? Like I just want a time machine so I can go back, change my whole life. Like no, like people need to get like everybody. I don't care if you're 80 or if you're 18, like the best of your life hasn't happened yet. 
period. Like you have so much more to give and so much more to offer and you're wasting your life and the opportunity to be healed and have an amazing life because it doesn't come behind a video game controller sitting in your mom's basement. Like it comes from being out there in the arena, like doing something to fill that sense of purpose. So we have a, a some listeners on Facebook Live. <laughs> and and obviously there's there's some military listening, some civilians listening as well. So some people want to know about your experience with the VA mm-hmm. and how you navigated that um, and how you worked through that system because they're, I mean, they hear stuff on the news about uh, the VA maybe not doing some, so well in certain aspects of taking care of veterans. So how can you talk about your experience with the VA and also shed a positive light on all the work that they've done for you? And there, the pe- there are people there that want to get it done. Yeah, they, 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 yeah. They, mm-hmm. There are people inside the VA system that take immense pride in their work, and they want to do a good job. They want to get it right. And a lot of veterans that work there. And a lot of veterans that work there. Mm-hmm. And you just got to find those people, and then to avoid the, you know, you, get, you just have to expect the roadblock. Mm-hmm. And when you encounter them, you just got to look for the way around it versus just letting it stop. Right. Mm-hmm. And all the stories that have come out, you know, unfortunately, they're all they're all true. Nobody made that stuff up to like make something look bad. Right. It's just you got You just gotta persevere. Mm-hmm. And and for for my in my case, I pay for my own health insurance outside of the VA mm-hmm. because my time is too valuable. Right. So like I want to be able to go and see the specialist I need to see without getting an appointment mailed to me. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, uh, it's a tough system to work in, but I use it for the things that I absolutely need from the benefits aspect, for prosthetic care. Got the people that I know to get it done for me, but it's mm-hmm. just discovery and getting it done. Yeah. So speaking of discovery, uh, you talked about your time in the hospital. You talked about your time with Wounded Warrior Project. Can you talk about some of the amazing opportunities that you've been able to be a part of um, I know a few myself. Uh, I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's some amazing things that you've done that I would like for you to share. And then uh, talk about looking back on it, like how it helped you mature. Because this really horrible thing happened to me, 
because this really horrible thing happened to me, people have wanted to help. And they've stepped up by donating to the Water Project so we can film on ski trips, so we can, so I can learn to snowboard tricks, mm-hmm. so I can, uh, you know, go to these like once in a lifetime experiences that are being targeted here by very famous LA based establishments, mm-hmm. right? Each time I've done something, like uh, like for the soldier ride, like learning to ride an unadapted road bike with you know missing two legs, and riding faster than other people, or like harder, stronger, mm-hmm. or um, playing golf, learning how to play golf without legs, and then beating people who did have legs. Like it actually got to be, you know, when I started going through all that and looking back, it got to be like. And Erica was already taken. Suffer from PTSD. They label PTSD from 
So when the invisible wound started to surface for me, I'm like, ah, I can't take this golf club. I'm going to drop it down on a bike or a ride. Climb the mountain. Went hiking. Like, there was always something I could do that, like, could change the dialogue in my mind. I've got to focus on better things. And then, so three years ago, I had this surgery. Surgery number 36. It's like, no big deal. Right? I remember my doctor telling me I was going to have to rehab. And I'm like, this is so old news to me. Like, I'm good. So old news. And I really, you know, was like, I'm going to be fine. The difference was with this surgery, I had to go home to Google. Like, I went home after climbing Mountain Peak, Florida, to my house, and I recovered just fine. But I couldn't wear my right leg, my right prosthetic, because the surgery was on my right leg. I couldn't wear my right prosthetic for eight months, six to eight months, they said. So I'm home alone. crutches and one prosthetic leg, I couldn't get up and down steps and chase chase a three-year-old. And um, when I was at home, it was six weeks, and I really couldn't talk to anyone. Like, everyone had jobs and, like, life. And people would come visit, like, after work, and maybe bring a meal or something, but I didn't really have time to spend with people. And I sat home alone, and then the, um, those invisible wounds started to surface. I couldn't escape them. You know, I learned statistics, 300,000, 320,000 goes a day to traumatic brain injury, identified with that, identified 53,000 more physically wounded, pretty much lay. And I never understood, though, that 2010 report from the VA where they said that 22,000 just, just to clarify on the numbers that you were speaking about, those aren't just veteran-specific numbers, or are they? We talk about the post-traumatic stress, and you talk about TBI. So these are veteran-specific numbers. Like, looking back at it now. But I 
I never got myself in a situation, thanks to like really great people like the Indian Border Project and other friends intervening and like, right? Like helping me see the other side of the situation, which is getting too dark, right? Too much into it. But when I was at home alone for eight weeks, and when these things started surfacing, and I couldn't go pick up salsa, and I couldn't hop on the bike, and I couldn't find mommy, I couldn't pick up the phone and call my babysitter. One, because they, they were at work, like, doing productive things, and, and two, like, I didn't know to talk to her. And, um, because I would never be the guy, I would never be the guy that's like, woe me, like, I'm having a problem. Like, I'm always the guy that wants to, like, fix the problem. Or, like, like, I had, it's, it's like for ten years, everybody that I knew would say, well, damn, you know, he's got his shit together. Like, he's on point. He's got it. And then reality was, I was, like, two steps away from, like, chaos. I just held it together really well. And so here I am, and these invisible wounds start, like, surfacing, and there's no way to cope from them. They kept persisting and persisting. And then I wasn't sleeping. So in order to go to sleep, I would, you know, I wasn't taking any prescription medication because I was, like, against that. Like, no to a sleeping pill. But I would chew up my pants full of Benadryl and chase it down the basement and, like, hope I wouldn't wake up. And then, like, woke, woke up, and then, like, it would come again. And I was having, like, I wasn't suicidal. So, when you say that you weren't suicidal, but in, in the sentence before that, you said you were taking Benadryl and, and chasing it down whiskey and hoping not to wake up. Right. So, if somebody's listening right now with that same idea that I'm taking this medication, chasing it down with, with liquor, or alcohol, whatever, hoping not to wake up, but then in the same vein saying you're not suicidal... Right. But if I just take seven or eight and just do a couple shots, like I'm probably just going to sleep. But like maybe, you know, so it's like more like a, um, like a cop out. Mm -hmm. Like I just wanted it to stop. I just, but it, and what it really was, I just wanted, I just wanted it to stop. Yeah. And I didn't have my coping tools. Right. Didn't have them. And then I was so tempted on multiple occasions to call in the water project. But then I never did because I was in this situation where I'd been such a, a part of the organization and kind of know, knew everyone that if I called, then they were like, holy shit, Dan's reaching out for help. It must be real bad. So like sending the SWAT team and the fire engines and like the helicopters and the like, and I didn't want that. I didn't want, I didn't want that response and I also didn't want the people that I worked with like to know I was going through that. So, right, because this is the line that we, we try to draw, honestly, between doing this podcast and doing the work that we do, right? But I just want to make a mention about that, right? If there's, and I feel that I have to address it now. Like, we try to, we try to draw the line, right? Yeah. So, but we do work for Wounded Word Project. Yeah. And we will 
send in the resources that we need to. So if there's somebody out there that's listening that's live right now, right, and here's Dan Nevin say that he didn't want that, but we will. Mm -hmm. But we will. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't want an immediate swift response. Right. I wasn't like socially in the right space for that. Mm-hmm. Um, because it wasn't quote unquote suicidal. Mm-hmm. Like if, if if I got to the point to where like I'm going to put this whole pack of pills in my hand, yeah, then I'd probably take a responsible call and say, "Hey, man." But I just was on the border of him being like, "Want to?" So I called Slim and said, mm-hmm. "Hey, Slim's name is Anna." And um, and she was this big yoga teacher, but she was just a really cool chick. So she tried to get me to yoga before. There's also another Wounded Warrior Project person that tried to teach me yoga, a woman named Morgan Williams. I think you know her. And um, she, you know, tried. I tried for like five minutes. I threw this big block across the room. I was like, screw yoga, I'm out. Like that's the closest I ever got. But I called this friend just to say, like, look, I'm hurting in this way. Like I told her what was going on. And I'm like, I just need some help. And she said, Dan. You need some yoga in your life. And I'm like, man, that's the dumbest thing you've ever said to me. Like, this I was, is why you're at home by yourself. This is why I'm at home by myself. I'm at home by myself. And I'm like, that's the best. And I, I said this to her. I'm like, yeah, I'll do Like, I know I'll call you. And I, like, but don't bring me some bull stuff like that, right? Like, just uh, yoga. I mean, you, I'm talking about, like, how my life is falling apart. And you're saying I should do some yoga. Like, you lost your mind, woman. And um, she heard me. Because I... You know, I'm saying kind of a joke now, but I was for real. I did not. Yeah. I was not doing yoga. I'm a man, mm-hmm. right? Like I eat meat, shoot things. Like, I don't <laughs> do yoga. Uh-huh. And so she said, "Well, what about meditation?" And um, I had read a bunch of uh, recent business books that talk about meditation. I'm like, Gandhi's cool. All right, I'll, t- I'll try to meditate. And I had tried before, but never really got it. Like it was just really unsettling for me. So she came to my house on her own time. Mm-hmm. And like the whole like you know, rowing and sit-ups and burpees on one yeah. I was doing burpees on one leg. Mm-hmm. That was that's prosthetic. And I'm just like, ah, it's like sweating and like just getting my inner savage on and like ah it's like it was good. Like I was like, mm, like I'm like ready. <laughs> and I called my friend Anna and I was like, Hey, I just want to say thank you. You know, because what you did, like this this meditation is really working for me. inside 
Here we go. I remember. Ha, ha, ha. They got all the gear. Yeah. And then you're looking around for somebody to pay for it. You're like, right. anybody gonna pay for it? Nobody wants to pay for it. I'm like, well, who does this? So like, I had to cash in my man card. Right? Uh-huh. Like, took it took 30% of my man card away. Yeah, yeah. And then I walked into a yoga studio. Boom, another 30% of my man card went away. Yeah. She was so dumb. Like, you know, on the outside, I've been trying. Like, yeah, yeah. Like and mm-hmm. uh, it was in a lot of pain. Like, my prostate was, like, jamming in the back of my leg. My one leg is still sort of healing from, from the surgery. Mm-hmm. And the, the wearing the leg is new again. And it is uh, not good. Uh, it's not pleasant. I'm in a lot of pain. Like, next to tears from pain. Mm-hmm. But, like, I'm like, it's just yoga. So, like, she's telling me how to do all this stuff. And I, I'm just, like, so bad. So it's like I'm not not used to being bad at this. So like here I am, I'm like I suck at yoga. Yoga. There goes my other thirty percent of my man card. Like I got ten percent of my man card left, uh-huh. and I'm just like holding on to it for dear life, driving home. Like oh, this is ridiculous. And I made up my mind. I'm like I'm not I'm not doing any more yoga. That is the dumbest thing ever. It was a waste of an hour of my life. Never gonna get that hour back. My leg hurts now. I have to ice it. Like this is ridiculous. And then she called to talk about it and she said okay let's schedule your next class and I was like about to as soon as I thought that my mouth was like I'm not doing that daggone yoga no more I realized you know I committed to three yeah Uh-huh. And because she was like a newer yoga teacher, yeah, she was good. Like, I, I know she'd never taught anybody without legs, right? So with prosthetic legs, at least she could use them. Mm-hmm. Foot's kind of still a foot, and she was like, "Yeah, we'll figure it out." And um, I got down on my yoga mat, and uh, and I'm not a hippie, man. Like I still own guns. I hunt shooting today. Mm-hmm. Like, I eat meat, and um, I try to do the right thing. It's like I eat meat. <laughs> I'm not a hippie. <laughs> Right on my mat, and it's just 
and is without the prosthetics. No pro- super prosthetics, right? Mm-hmm. It's basically two of them across the room. Right. Which is weird because no one got to see me do this. Like maybe five or six people. My wife, my daughters, my doctor, my foster parents. Mm-hmm. So that was like the most prideful part of my body. And it was gone. Like nobody got to see what was underneath. Like what used to be great and is now atrophy and shrunk and pasty and scarred. And like I didn't want anybody to see that. It's gross. It's mm-hmm. weird. So here I am, I'm tr- trying this yoga, like, one, I can't believe I took my legs off in front of a str- basically a stranger, like, she was my friend, but, like, <laughs> not to see my legs. Right. And here I am, I'm trying this pose, and my legs are spread, and I remember seeing what she was saying to me. She said, root down to rise up. And so, like, I imagined, like, my knees and my legs, up to my legs, were rooting roots from trees Real surge of energy, like lightning, like not like what, like a real profound burst of energy shot from the earth into my body, like it lit me up from the inside out, like being struck by lightning, but no pain, like I was just full of energy, like I felt like I was glowing, my arms shot over my head, tears were pouring out of my face, like I didn't even know what was happening. I was having this breakthrough moment of my life on this yoga mat. And this, meanwhile, like, she's just behind me. She's not aware of any of this is going on. And I am like in this state of like, I can't believe what's happening. I'm having this magical moment with the planet like from the ground. It's like the earth was saying to me, Dan, where have you been? prosthetic legs like not connected to the earth and like that lack of connection that simple lack of connection from like me to the planet was keeping me from connection like real connection everywhere in my life it's why my marriage failed it's why like I wasn't the best parent I could be and like I did a good job like I did okay like not who I actually wanted to be and um that moment It's like it started the clock over, and everything got better. So I learned that, like, the next half of that lesson, and the next one, I learned how to modify all these poses. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do classic yoga. It's the best thing that's ever happened in my life. And it started making everything make sense. And then, by the third, by the end of my third private lesson, I was signed up for yoga teacher training. I'm like, no, this is shit. I need more. I need more of this. I didn't want to teach yoga. Like, let's be clear. I did not want to teach yoga. <laughs> but I went to this yoga teacher training, which they said was like leadership school, and I was going to learn a lot about myself, and that's exactly what happened. And I, I went through Baron Baptiste Level 1 yoga teacher training through Baptiste Power Vinyasa Yoga, and I had my world flipped upside down, and it was the best thing that I've ever done. And um, even when we graduated, Baron said, like, congratulations, you're all yoga teachers. And I was like, bullshit. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm not. Uh, I just went there deep in that practice. But then, uh, 
But then it, it took you to the White House. It did take me to the White House. The White House, House lawn. Uh-huh. I've gotten to teach um, in Africa. I wow. I've taught to military in the Middle East. I get to teach, um, man, there's you know, amazing places, mm-hmm. different festivals. I've taught at the Freedom Festival. Right? And I tell you what, like my whole mission now is to get warriors on yoga mats. What's, yeah. what's been your biggest yoga class? How do you instruct 1,400 people? It's easy. It's actually easier than because you think, because it's a good, put it this way, and no offense to any yoga teachers out there, but I'm going to. Did you drop a nuggets? If you're a yoga teacher, get your pen and pad right now. So you start yoga, mm-hmm. you become enlightened. Yes, I'm very, I'm very right? enlightened. I'm um, enlightened. No, but it, but it no, had a reaction. It is true. Um, so you become an instructor, mm-hmm. which leads to creating Warrior Spirit Retreat. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. Those are all filters, man. Those are all filters. Six months later, it's June, and uh, I'm at a Leave Were event, 
dirty word there. And I get getting the hazing and the ribbing versus one dude who's like, "Man, you look different. You look like a fighter. You look I had lost some weight too. I was like in really good shape." Like I was like, "Dude, he's like you're that yoga." Like Dan Harris. Like Dan Harris. <laughs> <laughs> something that I can do to be a part of that number getting smaller then I'm going to do it. And if that meant like cashing in the remaining 10% of my man card and actually becoming a yoga teacher then I was going to do it. And uh, I've been on that train for the last three years and um, I'll teach anybody that will have me. And the more warriors I can teach the better. And uh, because I know like I've learned in my yoga teacher training, advanced teacher 
training and all the other ongoing education that I do with yoga is that um, like there's so much joy in life that like talk about leaving room on the bone. Like we all say like in, in like you know like if you're playing like classical golf course and if you're three feet away people are like oh that's skinny that's like lame so it's a meat on the bone. Like how much meat do you leave on the bone like living a life person that you know needed some help, totally didn't ask them what they needed because you didn't want to actually help them or we didn't have time. Like that's that's actually stuff that makes life worth living. And you know Gandhi has a quote and it's kind of cliche, it's used a lot. It's like the only way to find yourself is to lose yourself in service to others. And uh, being in the military, like a lot of people I, I notice this and this is for all you military folks that are listening. I want you to get this, and this is not like an insult, it's not mean, it's, but, I, but it's, it's the truth, I want you to get it, is like, wearing a uniform and serving a country isn't like real service, it's, it's not, it's not service in the way that I'm talking about service, I mean it is, and it's very admirable, especially if your reasons are, are pure good, but the thing is, why I'm saying it's not, is because at some point in your life, you're not going to be able to do it, it will be illegal for you to put on a uniform an American flag on your shoulder and pick up a loaded firearm and go fight. Like, that's not um, service. Like, you may want to act as service, as in raising your right arm and signing all that paperwork, and then you followed through on that for however many years that you were in, and then one day, that hasn't happened yet, one day they're going to take the uniform away from you, and then the gun stays in the army. And all those things are just like little decorations that you wear and it's nostalgic like reflection back. And like that's not, um, you can't choose to do that to yourself like that. Service, like being of service to people is a choice that you have to make every day. Like I, um, I can make so much more money if I went back into sales. And there's like a huge career, but like, but that's not as important to me. Like what I have to do, what I have to do to make myself feel good to sleep at night is to know that I've been in action, like in creation of helping people heal. Um, because I was, I was there. Like it's just, it's ingrained, it's a blueprint. And I struggled for a long time. I'm like, okay, how do I just teach classes? So at first I was like, I'm going to be the guy that teaches all the veterans. Everyone else is going to fuck it up. And like only I mm -hmm. can do it. And then I, I realized how ego-driven and bullcrap that was because it wasn't a warrior that taught me yoga. It was a chick in yoga pants. Like if you looked up yoga teacher and dictionary, there was like, you know, 20-something female in yoga pants. And you mm -hmm. said, that's who taught me yoga. So it didn't have to be me. So then I had this, well, I thought I'm going to invite, tell people to invite a veteran to yoga. Because I also don't like to teach classes to a veteran because then they become like all this lonely family. Right? Like why do they miss other classes, other training? Like no, just the veterans in the yoga class next to the teachers, next to the doctors, next to whoever. It's just like it's because we're all just human beings with different experiences, different types of trauma. And then like I started looking. This is actually years ago. I started looking at all the things that have been helpful in in my recovery and my life. So for me, and one of the biggest things I'm very connected to animals. Like I love animals. I grew up in the 
that result is common sense. And then the important issue I, sh I should have kind of marked this though is exon therapy has all these great benefits. Um, we're healing from post-traumatic stress and depression and all these other things. And when there's also nothing like working or training heavy for it. So I was like, oh, I would love to have a following of people who come around and do yoga. And oh, I'd love to have a place where people could ride horses and learn how to do it. And then, you know, it's fishing, like the mindfulness of fly fishing with tiny flies. Like, oh, people who just spend time with tiny flies would love to get fishing tips. And then, like, oh, golf. Golf is a insanely beneficial for my life. And I think, like, chasing this little white ball around would just be forget about all the real problems we have in life. So, like, all these things, and I'm like, oh, well, then there's yoga. Like, holy moly, like, if, if I could have a, a yoga And then it all kind of came together for me as I was like, man, wouldn't it be great to have a place where Gloria could go and they could be exposed to all these things and then learn about, because I would really love to just do, if I was being for real, I'd love to just do yoga retreats. If I had a, a yoga retreat and then like offered that to warriors, like nobody would come. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I'm not, not going to your, your effing yoga retreat. structure activities where we're a curriculum focused on yoga, mindfulness, and meditation. Like that's the glue to hold it all together. But then you take that learning through those experiences into real life experiences because they probably will be ones that we can use in treatment, like fishing, playing golf, like taking care of animals, like riding horses, like shooting bow and arrow, like those different activities that practice yoga, or maybe they'll at least meditate, learn the, the benefits of yoga. Like, what if I could find a place, and I was talking to my, my, my teacher, Baron, about it, and he was like, I think you should really do it. And then I hung up the phone, and then I got an email from my realtor, who I did not tell I was looking for a retreat property, I didn't say anything about it, and then came this perfect space for a retreat, had eight horse stables, had a barn with three apartments in it, caretaker's house, it had a perfect space for a yoga studio and meditation room, and it had everything that I needed, and it was in St. Augustine, Florida, which is like right next to my house, and I was thinking I was going to have to go buy 40 acres somewhere out in the boondocks mm -hmm. to do this, and I'm like, it's right here, and I went and looked at it, oh, and by the way, it's historic property that was, um, the Seminole Indian Wars were fought on, and there's a military cemetery on the property with a headstone. The bodies are, have been interred with the National um, Cemetery in St. Augustine with the headstones that they were. And then there's this 2.3 acre cypress swamp, beautiful, beautiful swamp um, that I want to have dedicated. So there's a memorial for the military members that fought and died in the Seminole Indian Wars, but there's no memorial for the Native Americans. So I want to be meditating also for that and then have that as a memorial, living memorial. Mm -hmm. 
still in the summer you can still still buy the property it's about a hundred million bucks um three million total that's why they built out ready to go so from here from the time we were able to buy it uh, we have the everything's in place the the budget the framework the timeline everything's there in place it's uh it's a 1.8 million dollars to buy it but we'll get there and we're we're on the road doing new fundraisers every day uh new ideas and um we're gonna make it happen because that is what I have to do. And it's not anymore like what I want to do. It's a good, it's going to be a complete inconvenience for my ass to do this. Like it's the hardest thing I've ever done. It's um it's a lot of work. I'll sacrifice on income, I'll sacrifice on family time. At least that family time will be a little different. Mm-hmm. And it'll make me the happiest I think I'll ever be for that first class to come through and uh, learn the tools. Because what I learned through the Invisible Warrior Project has been invaluable is I learned how to cope with the Invisible Wounds of War. And with yoga and mindfulness and meditation, I learned to heal from the Invisible Wounds of War. So now those same things that used to keep me up at night and like bother me during the day, they're just memories. They don't have an emotional charge in me, and they're just they they serve me as as lessons. But I have like zero point zero percent anxiety, fear about thinking about it. Nothing like the charge is gone. And if I can get half of that result for just a fraction of people, like I know that number will come down. So you have dannevins.com. Yes, sir. Right. So you you also have a link on there for Warrior Spirit Retreat, which will take you to the GoFundMe page, correct? You got it. Okay. And then we're in the last stages of the 501s. I had a big mix up with the 501c3 paperwork that I've overcome now. So I'm probably within the month that'll be up and then I can start asking people for the, the big dollars. Nice. Okay. Spread the word, people. Spread it. Spread it. How did what? Good. How did you how did you finish it? So, reach into your pockets. I don't know if I have any millionaires on Facebook, but I got some thousandaires. I have some thousandaires. Look, if if everybody I if everybody if every friend on my Facebook page and Instagram gave me and Instagram uh-huh. gave five bucks, like the whole thing will be built. You hear that? If every friend on Dan Nevin's Facebook page and Instagram page, mm-hmm. do you have Twitter? And Twitter. And Twitter gave five bucks. At Dan Nevins, you can't even mess it up. You we, uh, that's the easiest thing ever. Then we, we'd get it done. Boom. It, it would be done. You know what? I, consider my five in there. <laughs> okay. So let me just say, brother. The stories you've told and stuff that you've shared have touched me deeply and blow my mind. So I want to thank you for sharing like you have. Um, I want to read the last comments on our Facebook Live page here, and then I want to ask you another question. Uh, Pam said, Dan Nevins, I love you. Such an important conversation. Thank you. Sully, despite that, you were still an amazing guy at that point, brother. That's back when you were talking 
getting together the yoga. Uh, Mahalia, everyone needs a friend like you, Dan. You're an amazing person. I don't want to mangle it. Is it Dana or Dana? Day, Justice. Still itching to meet the legend, Dan oh. Nevins. Uh, Adam, oh man, I can't feel... I can feel this story. Love you, Dan. So thankful for getting to watch this. Uh, Bob, your attitude towards life and how you, how you face life's problems is absolutely incredible, Dan. Thank you for all that you do and for just being you. Robin, as usual, I find myself hanging on to every word Dan Nevin speaks. It is real. It is truth. It is inspiring. I am proud to call you a friend, Dan. Love you, friend. Dan a day. How can I help? DanEvans.com. WarriorSpiritRetreat.org. WarriorSpiritRetreat.org. Uh, Liana, I believe in you, Dan, and I know you will manifest your dream. Let me know how I can help. And then a whole bunch of done, done. Dana saying done on the $5. Yes. Holly, done. Mahalia, got it, friend. Chris, great hip-hop reference with the I got five on it, Dan. Yes. Impressive. But even beyond that... Beyond Dan Nevin's friends on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, if everybody that said done got their friends to say done, to say done then we get this thing wrapped up a lot quicker. Amen. So you've done it. Now go out and tell your friends about it um, and ask him, them to be done as well. Yeah. Done. done, son. Done, son. Speaking of done, are we about to wrap this up? After Jeff's question. So I got a question, and and I hate to digress, um, but I think it's just such an important subject. We were talking about twenty-two a day, mm -hmm. and uh, I asked you earlier. You know, what would you tell that veteran who is? still sitting in the dark in their room, not going out. Mm -hmm. To those listening who may be thinking about suicide, mm -hmm. have thought about suicide, what would you say to them? I would say that, like, what you're feeling is actually normal. Right? Like, life gets hard. such a departure from who I ever thought I was going to be that like it makes it it makes me realize that like I, I was supposed to leave Charlotte. I was all these all these things were supposed to happen 
so that I can wake up every day and know that I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And like I like when I say I know it, like there's no question. Like when even when the days are slower and like I'm not off teaching in classes and I'm just sitting there like answering emails and recording dates and like balancing my work between word projects or speaking and, and all these other things. It's like I know like however boring that day happens to be is that like this is gonna change the world. And so someone sitting at home, like don't give up on yourself because you can change the world like all by yourself. Like and you and you know you can, but there's like but there's a fear there. And so like ignore the fear. Like take all the things you've learned from like being in the military and and courage. Like courage is a muscle. Like you have to use it to develop it. So like the first courageous fact is like not doing the thing that you're afraid of. And then like maybe you have to flex that muscle every day. And then like the next step is to leave the house. And the next step is to like get a, get a good job. And the next step and the next step. And the next thing you know, man, you'll start to realize that the best of your life hasn't happened yet. And that's like my promise to everyone that's listening. Like no matter where you are, what you're doing, what your job is, what your life has looked like, how old you are. Like, I promise you the best of your life hasn't happened yet. And if you can learn to, like, actually live like that's true because it is, like, man, the world will be a better place. And your life will become your reality. Dan Evans. And believe it or not, like, there are are still so many stories that we didn't get an opportunity to talk about. Probably, probably better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Dan Nevins, you know that we love you, man. Uh, you've been family for a long time. Uh, we, we hope to have you back someday. Uh, hopefully we can have like a, a, a forum here. Uh, maybe have some other cats on with you um, just to shoot the breeze. Uh, tell some jokes. Maybe we'll go to you there. Yeah, even better. Even better. Even better. I think that would be pretty amazing. Um, where are you teaching next? The next place I teach is in Mobile, Alabama. Okay. Uh, this weekend. That's a little different Friday, from Africa. Friday and Saturday. Yeah, Mobile, Alabama. At Glow Yoga. Okay. Yeah. Come on out. Good stuff. I was just going to say, I was going to say something, but it sounded a little strange. I was going to say it's amazing how you get to go all over the country touching people, but that would sound creepy, but, <laughs> but truly inspiring. So. Pause. Pause. Uh, <laughs> so, Dan, we like to do, uh, we like to wrap this up by giving some takeaways, and uh, I think do you have one takeaway from this entire episode that you would like to share with everybody? To the Beauty and the Beast Mode listeners. Beauty and the Beast Mode. This is, this is what, here's my one takeaway. So I know both of you, and I know you're funny and fun. So like when I sat down, like I didn't expect to get like deep and was going to keep it like fun and funny. Mm-hmm. And so my takeaway is like who you are shows up everywhere. Right? 
how you are. Mm-hmm. Like, that's my favorite way. Mm. Because I like to have fun, and I like to, like, uh, I can't tell inappropriate jokes. And I do all that. And that's part of who I am. But, like, the more serious part of who I am is kind of, I, I want to help people. Yeah. And uh, so my takeaway is, is that just, like, be yourself even if when, even when you don't think that you were supposed to be. Good. Appreciate that, brother. Uh, my takeaway would be from something that you said is uh, don't leave any meat on the bone. <laughs> don't leave any meat on the bone. And it reminds me of my, when my parents would eat pork chops, they would eat all the way down to the bone, even suck on the bone. Like don't, not leaving any meat on the bone, literally. Um, but that's my takeaway. Don't leave any meat on the bone. Just eat it all. It's that, like, that, that's what it's there for. Yep. And if you leave it, you don't know what could happen. So I appreciated that. Somebody else is going to get that meat. And who knows if that was going to be the best piece of meat. The juiciest piece of meat. The most succulent piece of meat was left on the bone. Jeff, what are we going to do now? We're going to do a beast mode moment. Oh, the beast mode moment. That was the takeaway. And then we got the beast mode moment. Then we got Jeff's joint. Hey, the beast mode moment for me um, is the last thing that you said there. Courage is a muscle. Uh, I've said that for, for a lot of years as well. Uh, the more that you practice being courageous, uh, the stronger that muscle will get. So I appreciated that, brother. You know, hey, hey, we, could, we can go back and forth, brother. I, got, I can share some stuff with you. You can share some stuff with me, and we put it all out there. But at the end of the day, share $5. Everybody, at the end of the day, share $5. Yes. So now we go into what we like to call Jeff's Joint. This wraps up the entire episode Brings it all together in song because Jeff, in his heart, is a musician, oh, yeah. and he loves music, and his music always tells a story. So without further ado, if he's queued up this time around, are you queued up, Jeff? See, when Jeff's not queued up, I just have to keep going and keep riffing. It doesn't seem like he's queued up. So, Dan, he's queued up, he's queued up. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Without further ado, Jeff's. Joint, pim, pim, pim. And live your life. Hey! Jeff, why that song? Dan said it earlier. He, he said twice in the podcast, live your life. Um, he's, an, he's a rap fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just think that with his story, uh, everything that he's gone through from a kid growing up in Maryland, going through his time serving, uh, till his recovery after, to the amazing things that he does, continues to do, and will do in the future for people. Uh, just a message for everybody else who's listening. Just get up and live your life. Amen. Take away, Jeff. Live your life. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Yeye Martinez. This has been Big Jeff. For Dan Nevins, we thank you so much. We love you. I love you, brother. Thanks for being here. This has been Beauty and the Beast Mode. Be good to each other. Peace. See ya. Namaste. Namaste.